This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, otherwise known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Zoe Selengit, a Washington, D.C.-based writer. She also works as a cataloger of rare and unusual books, ephemera, and other surprising cultural materials for Brian Cassidy, bookseller. Zoe, hi. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. How are you? It has just been a bad couple of weeks. It has for uh, the world. Um, yeah, I. The world's terrible. Um, mm-hmm. I live in D.C., so I'm close to all the terrible, terribleness. Um, I had shoulder surgery recently, so if I'm loopier than usual, I'm going to blame it on that. And please uh, do. I think that that's my uh, my privilege. Yes. Um, aside from that, I'm great, though. Okay. I'm very, very glad to hear that you are doing well. Not everyone (laughs) is. And so it's always great to hear that someone's like, no, I can definitely be upright for the rest of the day. I'm going to be able to pull that off. Well, I mean, maybe I should wait till I've done it, but I think I can. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. No, I mean, hopefully we will not be answering questions such that they just put you out of commission for the rest of the afternoon. Um, But, you know, I guess today you get to catalog rare and unusual problems. (laughs) Yes. I'm so sorry. Um, no, it's uh, very true. Very true. And yes, one of the I think only one of them is extremely upsetting. And the last one, the last one is the best question I ever saw. So I'm very yeah. I, I I have been trying lately to balance not just having like a relentless series of really really upsetting questions. So I, I I've been trying to kind of like figure out a flow such that we're not always ending on a really rough note or just like you know, going through a series of just desperately unhappy situations. So, um, yeah, I I think we've got a good mix today. um, And I hope that we will be able to be useful to these people. And uh, we're just going to get started with um, some friends, only one of whom is apparently the hot one, Mm -hmm. which is just starting out strong. Would you read that letter? Oh, I would love to. All right. Subject is, my best friend punishes me for being, quote, the hot one, end quote. Dear Prudence, I've been best friends with a girl we'll call M for over 10 years. She stood by me through thick and thin, and I love her a lot, and try to be a great friend to her. She's recently had some tough times, and her self-esteem is way down, in part because she has put on a considerable amount of weight. She is gorgeous, but she always compares the two of us. I am very petite. She will make it a point to complain if she thinks men are looking at me on the street instead of her. She flips out if a guy she's talked to or dated begins to follow me on Instagram. And it's gotten to a point where I don't feel comfortable sharing my joy with her, especially with dating. I'm having a blast dating and meeting great guys, but she hardly meets men anymore. And when she does, she has bad luck. The resentment she has for me is palpable. And I hate that I can only really bond with her over trying to make her feel amazing or by highlighting my own problems. It's as if the better I'm doing in life, the more I have to hide it. How do I navigate this? That's a question. How... How does she navigate this? Well, I tried to be as neutral as possible when I read the phrase, share my joy, but I did not feel very neutral. So yes, yeah, so so she is the hot one because there can be only one, as as we know, 
from the Highlander. This is very difficult for me to be um, as generous as I think I would like to be, but I'll mm-hmm. do my best. For, I, I understand that people have to compress their life stories into a very small space to ask for advice. But the first thing that, that occurs to me is that there are things to talk about other than men, I've heard. Uh, I've heard that this is true. I, there are rumors. And there are subjects other than how many men are following a person on Instagram that one might discuss with a friend. Um, I take it for granted that what this writer is saying about her friend is accurate because I, I think you've said before as a philosophical thing, you have to assume that people are reporting their own lives accurately. Well, uh, you know, it, unless we think we have reason to think that somebody might be making an unnecessary assumption, um, it is certainly possible that the letter writer is making assumptions um, about what may be causing this friend's um, kind of shift in conversation. It, 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 yes. I, I don't want to necessarily buy into automatically the reading on my friend has gained weight and as a result doesn't like hearing about my dating life anymore. Um, there may be more to that. There may be less to that. Yes. Um, I, I certainly don't think any conversation the two of them should have should should be at all centered around her friend's weight. Um, uh, I don't think that that's I the problem. The one thing that stood out to me a lot was this little mention of a guy she's dated because that, I mean, it's easy to say, and I would say that worrying about social media is a petty concern and no one should be jealous of anyone else's social media business. But if this woman, this friend is dating very few men, then presumably this is an event. I mean, for her, this is, Significant when an ex of hers, I take it, would be an ex, uh, perhaps transfers his interest to her best friend. That could be hurtful, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I can imagine, especially if you have a number of exes that you're not necessarily going to stay super close friends with, if they suddenly start following your close friend on Instagram, that might carry with it at least a certain charge. Yes. Um, that, that feels like it falls into a separate category than like, it, it, you know, if the two of you are just out walking and your friend says that guy is looking at you uh, in a positive way and I hate that. Um, certainly you can ask her to not do that. I think that's really fair is to just say like, hey, I, I don't really want to point out to one another if we think a guy is looking at us um, or at me. Like, I don't want you to to draw my attention to that. I especially it makes me feel uncomfortable um, if you draw my attention to it to complain about it um, in, in large part because there's not a whole lot I can do uh, either to make that happen or to not make that happen. Um, so I'd like to ask you to stop. That that seems like a very legitimate request to make of your friend. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, yes. And I think it's also completely fair to ask a friend not to compare your looks to hers yeah. or her looks to yours. Uh, it doesn't matter whether she thinks or you think one of you is more attractive or not. It's not really it's not really a very nice thing to do, usually, uh, unless you both want to do it for some obscure reason of your own. It's not something that I think you have to necessarily tolerate just to be a good friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something about the tone of this letter that it it makes me a little bit... Um, how shall we say? Like I said, it makes me feel a little bit ungenerous, I think, because success in life is a little bit broader than uh, 
the sorts of things that are described in this letter. And I think that sexual jealousy is generally given a lot less understanding than other kinds of jealousy, such that mm. if, and what I mean by that is, if the friend had just gotten, say, expelled from college and the letter writer had just graduated with honors, uh, that would not be her fault. And it would not be her fault if she wanted to talk about it. But I think it would be easier to understand why the other person might not like to have it be the main topic of discussion. Hmm. And although no one wants to have to hide their accomplishments just because other people don't Right, but having them, a nice face isn't really an accomplishment. Yes. You know, it's, it's, that's it's the true. luck of the genetic draw. Um, so it's, yeah. I, and I think that the, one of the things that it may be possible for the letter writer to kind of stop and, and, and look at is, has in some ways our friendship sort of been predicated on a lot of conversation around like how gorgeous we both are and a lot of topic, like a lot of talking about dating and, and how great it is to be super conventionally hot. Um, and now that my friend is going through something that is making her feel insecure about herself, that's sort of highlighting the degree to which that's most of what we talk about. Um, again, yeah. that may not be everything um, there, but certainly I think in addition to saying like, hey, you know, I, I don't want you to like complain if a man looks at me on the street. That's really mm -hmm. legitimate. But also, you know, um, take the chance to like say to your friend like, hey, this seems like this has been really rough for you. Um, and I've noticed that it's mostly been coming out in the sense of um, you have vocally talked about feeling down on yourself or feeling upset when I go out with somebody else. Um can we talk about this? Like, what's this What's this been like for you? How are you doing? Are there ways that I can support you um, or be there for you in ways that I'm not doing now? Um, would you like to spend some time together that is not sort of um, like uh, centered around going out and meeting guys and dating? Do you want to have occasional times where we get together and we don't discuss our dating life? Will yes. we talk about the books that we're reading, the movies we're seeing, the friends that we're spending time with, the, the work that we're doing, um, you know? How yeah. can I how can I help? Like you can do both of those things. You can ask how you can be supportive and you can also say, hey, please don't, you know, say it really sucks if a guy smiles at me because, uh, you know, Absolutely. nothing I can do about that. Yeah. And I should say also there's nothing there's there's no no one should ever have to apologize for what they look like or or I mean, I should say even no one should have to apologize for being aware of what they look like. She shouldn't feel any need to pretend that what's happening is not happening. I mean, if. If she is correct in her self-assessment, then that's fine. And it's not yeah. something that she's doing wrong. But the thing I think the thing to talk about is how are you doing? I've noticed this. There's a limit I want to set. And I also want to know how I can be supportive rather than stop talking about dating altogether with her um, or playing up things that aren't going well in your own life to like because you assume that's going to be what will reassure her because at at that point you will be creating resentment towards her and yourself um, yes. and you will be avoiding the issue that is um, kind of going between you. Um, I, I certainly think ask open-ended questions and listen. Don't jump to um, I've noticed that you have gained weight and I have decided that that is causing the following like eight characteristics of, in your behavior. Um, listen to her. Um, and, and, and hear where she is coming from rather than saying like, I definitely know everything that's going on with you. Um, yes, I agree. And you know, you, you certainly do not have to apologize or feel guilty for, um, going on fun dates, um, or getting attention from the opposite sex. Um, but you know, that also, it, it might be a way to kind of stop and check in and say like, what else do we talk about? What else is, um, 
you know, you've known her for 10 years. You've been together through thick and thin. Um, so I, I imagine that there's a lot of other stuff that you two could be talking about. Yeah. That's another thing, too, because I think that if this were someone she just met who had the sort of this combative attitude, then it would be much easier to say, well, if she can't be supportive, then just don't hang out with her anymore. But for a best friend for 10 years is worth is worth is worth doing something about, I think, if it's possible. It's worth yeah, putting something into absolutely just you know just say honestly like hey i've noticed that you have seemed down on yourself in a way lately that has been really out of character for you and it has seemed like it has made a lot of our interactions hard and i just want to know more about what that's been like like you don't have to um make too many assumptions about what's been going on with her but neither do you have to be afraid of naming the dynamic um and you know good luck i i think with a friendship that has lasted this long and then there's a lot of love between the two of you i hope that you are able to have this conversation um with love, with reassurance, with, you know, non-judgmental openness, um, and that you two can kind of figure out what are some ways that you can change the ways that you talk to one another. Yes. All right. So this uh, this next question is at least a sort of a, a different spin, which is like, how do I display solidarity with friends at work? So at least someone's coming with like uh, a kind of right on sense uh, attitude towards towards friendship. Um the subject is overworked and underpaid. Dear Prudence, I work for a well-known nonprofit and make around $27,000 a year and work long but flexible hours. While this is not ideal, I'm a recent graduate with low living expenses, and I feel the training I'm getting is worth it for the next year or so. However, I just learned that one of my coworkers has been having trouble with her rent, borrows regularly from her parents, and visits a food bank. I find it pretty horrifying that those of us who took jobs to help the public are not paid a living wage. My organization has made it pretty clear that they are not interested in hearing anything about this issue. I know they have money. I personally helped fundraise over $300,000 for them over this past summer. I believe strongly in our mission, but it feels wrong to me to be working here and supporting this type of system. Short of quitting on the spot, what should I do? Man. Mm-hmm. I have some- What should they do? Well, so... This is, I, I should say, I, 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 perhaps I shouldn't feel this way, but since you are the prudent one by the um, name of the, the name of the show, uh, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm, I have a little more leeway to be reckless as I like to be. Uh, I think, I wish, perhaps for legal reasons it couldn't be done, but I wish they had named the nonprofit because people like to know these things. Um, I, it's not completely clear to me that they know for a fact. The other coworker makes the same or similar salary. Uh, it, it would be it would be a problem if it was the same, but if it was even lower, it would be much more clear cut. Um, yeah, I I will say just because I'm very much in sympathy with this person, and I think they are very well intentioned. I would be careful of saying that you know they have the money unless you've actually seen their operating budget and where that money goes, because it. The raw number of uh, how many dollars was taken in doesn't tell you everything. Um, I have a suspicion that may not be correct that this might be one of those. I mean, there's fundraising jobs and fundraising jobs. If this is one of those situations where you stand with a clipboard all day getting people to sign petitions and give you money, I have done a similar job and I've known people who did such jobs. And yes, they are exploitative and bad. But it's a slightly different situation than if you are full-time with benefits. And I'm not – the the overall principle was the same, but the details might make some difference. I'm not sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, a, a couple things like, you know, one one of the things that you can do um, is uh, sharing with your coworkers uh, how much you make, asking them how much they make. Again, not like stopping by someone's cubicle and saying, like, how much do you make? Um, but as a general principle, sharing that information with your coworkers um, in an attempt to help one another um, demand raises whenever possible. Um, and that that is useful information that generally speaking, management wants everyone to feel very uncomfortable about and like it is rude. Um, and that is one of the many ways in which they can get away with pairing, paying different kinds of people way less than they should. Oh, also, um, also just if you're fresh out of college and you don't, if this is your first job as a recent graduate or or one of the, one of your first few jobs, you may not know what is acceptable. And like like you said, just said, like, employers do thrive on you not knowing. And you right. are entitled to tell people and they are right. able to tell you that it's okay yes. and it is a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, and that another thing you can do um, is there are sites like Glassdoor where people can anonymously post um, their positions at various companies as well as what they make. Uh, and that can be helpful to other people applying for jobs there to get a sense for what the company is paying. Um, so look for different ways that you can help other employees advocate for themselves and get as much information as possible. Um I, I certainly think you should encourage this coworker to ask for a raise um, and, you know, do whatever you can within reason to be useful to her. You know, I, I admire your your kind of question of like, should I just like quit on the spot? Um, given how many companies enjoy not paying people a living wage, um, I don't think that that's going to necessarily be um yeah, a no. good idea for you in the long run. I understand because it can feel like this is supposedly a company that is invested in the public good, and yet they're paying us, you know, uh, very, very little. Um, right. You know, and where I mean, what I what I was thinking of is recklessness is just that if you are to the point where you can afford to quit and you want to quit, don't just walk out. Like, tell them why and make them listen to you. And if you don't know, you may not know if they offer exit interviews, and those don't always mean much. Um, I have heard the exact opposite advice given pretty much all the time, but I personally have stormed out of a job or two while telling people my opinions about that job. How did that go for you? It was the most fun I've ever had in my life. It was like, did it work? Like, did it work out well? Like, did it have any repercussions or? Well, it made me feel better. It okay. so so that's a no. But um, <laughs> but it did not have any. There's always a risk of retaliation, but I think that it's not necessarily as bad as you might think because p businesses of all types, not just nonprofits, are able to egregiously underpay, especially young people and entry-level people, because there's such a large unending supply of them. People want mm -hmm. to do good. People expect to make very little money when they're at their first job. And that means that you have little bargaining power, but it also means they're not going to go after you and ruin your career most likely. And I shouldn't say that as if I know, but it there's it is often possible to say things that you think you can't say. You shouldn't start yelling and cursing and standing on chairs unless that's really your style. But it even if it is your style, I think you yeah, should question whether or not that should be not. your style. But uh, but if you if you're like I said, if you're going to quit. So that you're not afraid. There's a lot that you can do once you're not afraid anymore. If you're not afraid mm -hmm. of being fired, you have freedom to speak until you're walked out of the building. And you should be strategic about it. But I would certainly not want to leave without saying something. And the first step would be to speak to as many coworkers at your level as you can. Because a group of people 
better than being alone. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be your best bet, especially because so many workplaces, whether they are a nonprofit or not, you are going to run into the same problem again and again. So part of the question is going to be both, you know, how do you make sure that you are able to pay your own rent um, as well as how can you do the most that you can as an individual in helping your colleagues and coworkers, yeah. um, you know, band together to to demand, you know, living wages. And I think that like part of what is so, so, you know, awful about this practice is like the coworker in question is able to borrow money from her parents. Right. Um, right. Which means that this is a job where you need to have parents with money. Yes. Um, like and and even so she's going to a food bank regularly, um, which means that if you have parents who do not have just like extra money, if you are supporting your parents by sending money back to them every month, um, yeah. You're not going to be able to get this kind of job. So this is like creating the kind of industry where everybody who starts has to have wealthy parents. Yes. Uh, and I, maybe I not also... the 1%, but parents who have enough money to send you some, which is not everybody, not even most people. Right, right. And even even if, uh, again, because the, I'm sure the, the writer doesn't know all of the personal details of this other person, but even if this the struggling coworker is part-time or even an intern, that doesn't give you the freedom to get another full-time job that does have benefits and does pay you fairly. It doesn't actually help you to sustain yourself, even if on paper it looks like a fair hourly rate. Um, and it's always, I think it's always a bad move to start worrying about what the company can and cannot afford to do, because that kind of empathy only ever seems to go one way. The company is not or the, the nonprofit is not concerning itself with what you can and cannot live on. So I sort of wish that I'd had this question a little while back because I had Talia Jane on the show a while back. And you may remember her for oh, writing yes. an open letter to her I CEO do. when I she do. was at Yelp I read um, that, talking yes. about the ways in which she was not able to to make a living for herself in the Bay Area despite working a full-time job. Um, and there right. was a lot of, you know, controversy because, it, you know, uh, among other things, she was a a, a young woman talking about wanting to be able to support herself. And that makes some people right. how, very... How dare she? How dare she? Um, yes. Yeah. And this idea that like only if you work, you know, uphill both ways, 95 hours a week, do you deserve to have uh, the ability to support yourself? And you'll see this in like heartwarming stories of like the guy who walks like three miles to work every, or like 10 miles to work every morning. And so his CEO, after two years of this, gives him a car as if we're all in this competition to martyr ourselves so like cinematically that we are rewarded with things like a car or enough money to pay the rent and buy food. Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I think a universal basic income is a fantastic idea. I agree. Um, and uh, I, God, I hope that your nonprofit is not working towards that um, because if they were, that would be uh, deeply upsetting. But yeah, I, I think, you know, quitting out of solidarity is not the move right now. Um, but certainly advocating for yourself. Like, I, I know that you're coming up with a lot of reasons why it's kind of okay for them to pay you $27,000 a year. And, you know, depending on what part of the country you live in, it may um, not not be uh, incredibly difficult to make ends meet. But, you know, certainly don't don't let the company talk you out of advocating for yourself before you start. Like, well, it's fine for me. Um, like, Push for a raise whenever possible. Um, share that information with your coworkers. Um, you know, and and frankly, like you know, talk to your bosses when you do regular reports, and just say like, I'm concerned that we're not paying people enough to to make ends meet. Again, do this without like going into details about your coworkers' living situation. That's not your information to share. Um, but you know, 
right. make it a point to, to talk about it. And, and if people get a little uncomfortable, that's okay. I do wonder, and this is total speculation, and I think that they would probably have mentioned this, but there are nonprofit fundraising jobs where your pay is sort of, I want to say commission-based, but like is a percentage of what you take in as donations. And that can lead to people doing the same job, making wildly different amounts. And I think that that is indefensible as a practice. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like paying people below a minimum wage if they get tips. It's not, it's not a fair way of doing things. Um, and it can mask how close to real grinding poverty some people are because if certain stars are making a lot, then you don't, you can pretend that you don't know that not all of your people are making enough to live on. So if that's yeah. any part of it, that's another big problem. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think, you know, there's some stuff that's going to be available to you. There's some things that you're just not going to be able to change um, either today or even in the in the long run. Um, but I, I hope that you are able to find ways to be useful both to yourself and to your coworkers. Um, and to remember that, as always, management is not your friend. Um this next letter, which I think it's it's your turn to read, is probably the heaviest one um, that we have. It's about trauma within the family and how to talk about um, sexual abuse. Oh, um, yes. And, yeah. Yes. So this, this, this I have is... actual notes on because it's such a serious, it's, it's an upsetting and a, yes. So shall yeah. I read it? I'll read this one. Please. Thank All you. Right. The subject is confronting trauma within the family. Dear Prudence, I am the youngest and only girl in my family. When I was around age six, my oldest brother, by 10 years, touched me inappropriately. I was always aware of what he did, but I didn't realize until adulthood that he was using my body to masturbate. I can recall it in vivid detail. My mother left the family a few years after that, and my father was largely absent. I was actually very close with said brother. I've only recently realized the seriousness of what he did to me. My question is, how do I reconcile this awful thing he did to me versus all the decent stuff after? Do I confront only him or the whole family? I'm scared that no one will believe me or that no one will, re will react at all. I'm exhausted from carrying this shame. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I, I mean, I, I almost hate to say this because I'm afraid it sounds patronizing, but I, I, I of course, believe you and you shouldn't have to carry the shame. It's his shame, not yours. Um, I, I think, and correct me if, if you think I'm reading this wrong, I take this to mean when, when she says oldest brother by 10 years, I take that to mean he's at least 10 years older than she is. Is that right? Possibly more. Yes. Yeah. My read on that was that he was 16 and she was right. six. So, yeah. so technically both minors, but it is, not, it is not a situation where he has the excuse of also being a child. In my, in my right. No, opinion. it's not like you were both uh, roughly within the same age range, which, again, would not make it cool right. or OK, um, but would at least be something to consider. You know, he was two years away from being able to vote. Um, he was much, much, much older than you. Yes. Um, he, he was not working with the same level of cognition as a six year old by a long shot. And I, I almost wonder, since since she says that her mother had left the family uh, and the father was, I don't know if this means emotionally or physically absent or both, but it suggests to me that a brother that much older, even if he didn't behave, obviously didn't behave like a parent, he might have sort of, someone that much older Had a parenting than you. role in the family? Yeah, you don't just, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make it worse because I don't think anything makes it worse. It's all bad, but it's another, another despicable thing about doing this. Um, 
I have I do want to say though that like that when when you say to the letter writer when you when you say that you're afraid of these things, I have some tentative advice, but I do want to say that I think that your fears make perfect sense and. Yeah. The the thing that's really hard about this is that no one can tell you that you're being silly and this, these things won't happen because we, I think we all know, we should all know that you don't know what will happen. And yeah. that's, yeah. that's, that's why, that's why it's difficult to decide what to do because you don't know. And that's not yeah. your imagination and that's not your trauma telling you that that's, that's true. That's a real fear. Yeah. And, and I wish so much that that weren't the case. But the number of letters I get from people who say, you know, I finally came forward and told my family that another member of the family abused me. And often the family's response is some version of, I don't think that that really happened. Um, I'm sure you're misremembering. Um, or I'm sure it wasn't that bad. Or yeah. it's been a really long time and you need to let it go. And that's not to say that will absolutely be your family's response. So you should just give up to protect yourself now. But I, I mostly just want to say that to affirm that that's a real fear, and I understand where you're coming from in that, and I'm so sorry, and I wish that that were not um, such a common response in families um, to shut down the conversation before it even starts. But I, I, I get where you're coming from, and I think I would never, I would never tell someone that they should or shouldn't be in therapy or have a therapist. That's a completely personal decision. But I think I'm not even going to say this is advice. I'm just going to say this is what I would do, and it might not be a good idea. But what I would do. If it were me, I would want to have someone on my side who was not related to me so that no matter what happened when I spoke to my family, there was one person I could go back to who was not part of this circle who would not be affected by any reaction they had. Because I think part of the fear is that like you tip over one domino and then whoever you speak to first, the abuser or your other brothers or your parents, they all, if one has a bad reaction, it sort of spreads and then they're all against you. And I think for your own emotional safety, it would be good to have someone who will not be influenced by anything they think or they say, who will, who will be on your side no matter what, whether that's a therapist or a good friend or anybody else, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I want to try to do more often on the podcast is to kind of list a few alternatives for somebody who can't afford therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say, you know, like the... the the ideal situation, if money is not an object, um, is to start seeing a therapist who specializes in helping people um, process childhood sexual abuse um, and related trauma. Um, and if that is not possible, um, to consider booking a handful of sessions, like targeted sessions for both before and after talking to your family so that you can have kind of a plan of who do I want to talk to first? How do I want to talk about it? How will I end the conversation if it starts to go off the rails? Um, and, and, and how do I want to go about conducting this? And then also one or two sessions for after you have done that to sort of check in um, and to make sure that you have been able to um, stick to your plan as much as possible, that you are able to take care of yourself um, and so that somebody is helping you kind of clarify what your goals are in these conversations. Um, if that is not possible, if you have a trusted friend. Um, and again, I, I realize that this may not be something that you want to talk about, even with a close friend. And um, so if that just feels like something that you're not able to do right now with any of the people in your social circle, e even just having a journal and kind of writing out, you know, what's the worst possible outcome if I have this conversation? What's the best possible outcome? Uh, what's the worst possible outcome if I don't have this conversation? And what's the best possible outcome there? Um, 
and to kind of write out a series of, if this happens, I might choose to do this. Um, here's the kind of conversation I am open to having. Here's the kind of conversation that I don't think will be good or helpful for me. What's the line where if somebody crosses it, I'm going to have to say, we cannot be in contact. Um, what will I do and who will I turn to and how will I reach out for support if I decide I have to pull back from my family so that I don't feel totally isolated? Um, just, I think thinking about these things ahead of time so that you, if nothing else, think, I know what I'm going to do in the worst case scenario um, will will be helpful towards helping you make a decision. And again, I say all that because I could understand you deciding to have that conversation. I could understand if you decided you're not ready to do it. Um, it, there's, There's no decision that you could make that I don't think would be good because it would be the one that is looking out for you. But you do say that you're exhausted from carrying this shame. And so I do think that that is at least um, a, a point in favor of having the conversation, even if it ultimately means you are not able to be in contact with some of the members of your family for a while, because it sounds like what you've been doing for years, which is trying to focus on the good and to ignore and hide the bad, um, is eating you up and making you feel exhausted. And I don't want that for you. I I understand. This is not a situation I have personal experience of, but I do think I understand really well why you might not want to tell, even though you want people to know. Because when you tell someone about this, unless they react extremely well, you're giving up the hope that you may have that they'll react well. You, you, as long as it's a secret, you can imagine that it might go well, and. Yeah, you don't have to know for sure, and it, like you say, you know, it, it not knowing does eat you up eventually, but it protects you for a while, and mm-hmm. it's, it's very fair to me, like that that you would want to keep that as long as you can, and if you decide that you can't do that anymore, that's fair too. There, yeah. there isn't any wrong choice, but it's, I think it'll be hard, but there, there isn't any wrong choice. And I get that, yeah, because right now there's at least that thought of nobody else knows. Um, and so there's the hope that if they did, they would support me. Um, but if I say it and they don't, then that will be a compounding of the initial betrayal. Um, and it will come from everybody who knows me. Um, and that would be devastating. So again, that's part of why I would encourage you to either set up sessions with a therapist or talk to other people in your life, um, before doing this so that you have support in place in case, you know, the worst happens and they say, we don't want to hear about this. We don't believe you or it wasn't that bad. And the only, I'm sorry, the only thing I, I did, I didn't want to forget to say this because there were, there were a couple parts to the question. And when she said, my question is, how do I reconcile this awful thing he did to me with the decent things he did afterwards? This, people talk about reconciliation in this sense a lot and I don't understand it at all because mm. people do more than one thing not just in their lives, in a day. You know what I mean? Like, at one point today, I, I'm i sitting in a chair right now, I was standing up before. I don't reconcile those two things because they're not in conflict. They're two different things that I've done. And you don't purchase the right to hurt someone by doing good things. And you don't pay for it after the fact by doing good things. It right. does not, it is not like reconciling accounts where if the numbers add up right, then, then it's okay. And I, I don't think that this is what she means by reconcile. But if you mean, I, I, make I understand it, what you mean. Yeah, because like the fear would be that somebody else would say, 
you know, but look at all the other ways in which he like stepped up and helped raise us. So shouldn't you let it go? Right. Or, um, or and it, so, how could a decent person do this? Well, I mean, the easy, obvious answer is he's not really a decent person, which I think is the case. But even if you even I mean, you want to have a good brother. You really want that. And you want to have a brother who wouldn't do this. Right. And that's what he took away. He took away himself. He took away himself as a good brother and he destroyed it. Mm-hmm. And in the insofar as I, I feel I feel like in a way, when she says, How can I reconcile it? She means how can I keep the good brother that I, yeah. I remember? And I don't I don't know. Um I'm not sure he's real. And I think that's the worst part of it. And yeah. I really feel for her. And- and I think for this letter writer to say, like, you know, my mother left the family. My father was absent. Um, and the only person in her family that she mentions with any sense of connection or closeness is just that one line. I was actually very close with him. Yeah. And she has uh, other brothers, so pa- too, right? Because. Yeah. And I don't. Yeah. There's no there's no real hint of of how that those relationships are. So I can't really. Yeah. And it, so, yeah, just as you say, there's that fear of. um if this goes badly, if I can't reconcile these things, if I let myself really deal with the seriousness and the weight um, of the abuse that he committed against me, what will I have when I think of my family? Will I be able to think back on any memory of love or closeness or affection that is not tainted? And how will I live my life? Um, because that's 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 really painful. Um, and so I would just say to that, you know, um, if there are ever things that feel meaningful or important to you to remember, um, uh, you can do that. You are allowed to do that. You are allowed to remember with fondness things that also came from the person who abused you. Nobody is abusive 24-7. Um, everybody also does other things. That does not that does not mitigate um, or explain away the fact that he abused you sexually when you were a very young child. Um, so I don't I don't have like some great way of tying that all up i just mostly mean you know if you felt loved in those moments that's real you don't have to let go of that um but it also does not mean that you should not speak about it now or that he has earned the right to have this be forgotten um i think that's the most important part so then the other question is do i confront only him or the whole family again i think that would be up to you um Keep in mind, you know, not just your physical safety, but your emotional safety. Like if 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 being in a room alone with him and having a conversation about this in person were he to deny it or to get angry or hostile sounds like too much. And frankly, I think it sounds like too much. Um, think about whether or not you would like to put something in writing um, or, or do it over the phone. And if you would like to have somebody else with you on the other end um, to be there for you and to help you and to check in if you need to get off the phone um, and to plan out in advance you know, how, what do you want to say? Do you want to start by saying like, the reason I have not talked about this um, for a long time is because I've been afraid no one would believe me um, or that nobody would care. Um, But I'm exhausted from feeling ashamed. And I know that this is not my shame to carry. Um, You know, when I was young, um, you molested me, you were 16 and I was six and I've carried that with me my whole life. We've never talked about it. Um, I I, I just want to say out loud that happened. That was wrong. That was real. And you should not have done it. Um, and and if there's other things that you want to add to that, if there's other things you want to ask either of him or of your other family members, um, you know, consider how, how you would want to put all that together. Um, 
But I, I think it's really up to you whether or not you want to start with him or whether or not you want to start with somebody else. Um, if you're if you're at all close with any of your other siblings or a cousin or an aunt or an uncle that you have some kind of relationship with where you think that they would be a good person to start with, you could absolutely start with somebody else. You don't owe him like the the chance to have the first conversation. Um, I agree. Yeah. And again, you know, take stock. Like if that conversation goes badly, give yourself permission to say like, this is really overwhelming and difficult for me. I'm going to hang up or I'm going to go. You know, you do not have to um, go into a big back and forth if somebody wants to get argumentative or if they simply can't accept the fact that somebody in their family abused you. Um, Yeah. Yeah. um, I really, really hope that at least one member of your family believes you and is furious and devastated on your behalf. Yeah, they should be. Yeah, they should be. That's the thing. It's just when somebody in your family says that somebody else in the family abused them, the first reaction should not be nothing or I don't believe you. Um, That's just across the board, not a good way to respond. And I think especially, I, I I don't get the sense that that she's in contact with her mother, although that she might be. But this seems like a situation where your parents might justifiably feel guilty for not protecting you because one was physically absent, the other was, you said, largely absent. Um, yeah. That would be very, very hard, but it would speak to their characters and not to yours. I mean, I'm sure you know that, but that would be their horrible fault that would yeah. be yours. And ultimately, I think the thing for you to bear in mind is there is a huge pain and loss with not being in contact with family members. I don't want to undersell that. I don't want to, you know, play that down. But I will say that being in contact with your family the way that you have been has left you exhausted from carrying shame. Um, And so even if you have this conversation, it does not go well. Um, If you need to protect yourself and if you need to say, I can't have a relationship that is predicated on my denying the abuse that happened to me. that's a really, really okay boundary to draw. And it may, in fact, feel better than the kind of pain you're in now. Again, if you think about this and you decide that's not worth it to me, you do not have to do this. Um, but it, it, at least you will not be carrying the pain of, well, we're all going to you know, have dinner next week. And you know, that dinner is going to rest on my putting on a happy face and pretending that I wasn't abused. So again, only you can decide what um, situations you are and aren't willing to put yourself in. You can also, by the way, I would just like to give you a third option, which is to just step back from your family entirely and to not have this conversation right now Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, God knows, you can always cut off your family. And I mean that. I'm not trying to be funny. I I really mean that. Yeah. Especially in a situation like this, that... Um, that would be okay, um, that you do not owe them anything. Uh, you know, again, that's that's given your situation, that's that's really, really true, that if what you need to do right now is to just go radio silent for a while and then decide whether or not you would later like to have this conversation, you can do that too. Yeah, you, 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 you get to do whatever you need to do right now. Um, and I hope that you will stay in touch and let us know how you're doing and how you're looking out for yourself, whether or not you do decide to talk to your family about this. And again, I'm just so sorry. I, I, I'm so sorry. This is deeply painful. And I hope that whether it's a therapist or other friends or, or more distant family members, that there is at least one person in your life that you can talk to about this who will respond um, immediately and with great grief and great love. All right. 
So we're going to kind of turn away from the heavier stuff um, and and get back into a little bit more of the sort of like quotidian difficulties of being a person. Um, And the subject of this next one is simply unique living situation. Dear Prudence, I've recently entered a romantic relationship with a man who's in an open marriage. His wife is a dear friend of mine. Due to unfortunate circumstances, the beginning of this relationship was significantly stressful, and I vented about this to a relative, asking that she keep this in confidence. She instead took it upon herself to inform my parents, who I still live with, to save money after college. They do not approve of polyamory, and I have since blatantly lied about my current relationship status in order to keep in contact with my boyfriend and his wife. Recently, this couple has suggested that I move in with them. It's an attractive idea, but I don't know how my parents would react. I fear they would try to put a stop to it if I tell them if I tell them who I intend to live with. And while I'm aware they cannot legally stop me from leaving, they could disown me. I'm not sure I could face that. What options are available to me? So I I, I don't want to be like too hyper vigilant. I'm curious, you know, given that this person is apparently recently out of college and still living with their parents and and really distraught at the thought of having their parents, like, disapprove of them. Um, and the boyfriend and wife in question are married and apparently have their yes. own place. Like, <laughs> how much older are they Would you believe you? that's exactly what I thought? I, I even, you know, even if, I mean, people can get married at, you know, young ages. Maybe they're the same age. But. Even if they are, I think that going from one couple's house where you are the most junior person there to another couple's house where, as a newest roommate, mm-hmm. you are also the most junior person there is maybe not as big a step up as you need to take. And yeah, I think especially like given the vagueness of due to unfortunate circumstances, the beginning of this relationship was stressful. Um Again, that does not mean you have to break up with them or that they are like de facto being predatory and and bad. Um, But given that the beginning of the relationship was really stressful and it took a real toll on you and the only person you were able to turn to in that moment was a relative rather than like a peer or a friend. um, I think a, a, a better thing for you to do is either save up money so that you can get a place by yourself um, or or move with friends that you're not seeing romantically. You know, it's a it's a big step to move in with somebody that you're seeing. It's a, it's an especially big step if they are both in like a, a marriage with legal protections and you're not. Um, and I think that it will go a long way towards developing a sense of independence and a sense of freedom um, to live somewhere that is neither with your parents nor with an older and established. Sorry, another established couple that is inviting you to join. Yes, them. and also if they are offering to let you live there rent free or at a discount rent, don't accept that. Uh, that's not a good situation because it it gives you a reason to stay with them that might not be in perfect accord with your desires as someone in a relationship. And you don't want to right. have to prioritize having a place to live over being happy with your boyfriend and his wife. Right. I think you've also learned an important lesson about what you do and don't share with your relatives. I think definitely had you written to me before asking, should I vent about this to a relative? My advice would have been not unless you are comfortable with coming out to your whole family. Um, not that coming out is always the, the the best phrase to use for polyamory. I'm not really 
there's a lot of different ways that language is sometimes transferable from other communities and sometimes ways in which it isn't. But anyways, unless you were ready to talk to your entire family about this, um, I would not have counseled you to talk to a relative because that's a big secret to ask someone to keep. Um, and again, I, I definitely understand why lots of people who are in fantastic, open, polyamorous relationships still choose not to talk about this with their biological families. And that does not mean that they are, you know... Um, less than fully mature or need to develop more independence or doing anything that they shouldn't be. It's simply the the choice that is best calculated towards making you know, um, life easier and simpler and, and, and good for everyone involved. So that is not the problem. I think it's more just the ways in which all of this has been developing reads to me like a very young person who is perhaps new to um, – interpersonal relationships of such a dynamic and you know who do you talk to when you're frustrated versus how do you press pause and reflect on some of your feelings um yeah i i feel like the letter writer maybe has some growing to do still and again i'm not saying this like i, I don't want to be too hard on the letter no writer, and that's and i also i don't want to read in things that aren't there but if there's any chance that the thing that the parents disapprove of is not exclusively the polyamory, but whatever stressful circumstances were disclosed to them. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's very hard to take seriously the advice of your parents. If your parents are the kinds of people who would disown you for that or really for anything. But if there are issues that concern them that are not simply the fact that your boyfriend is married, maybe, I mean, don't do what they tell you. I mean, God forbid, don't, don't do what your parents tell you, but, Maybe think about that if there is anything there. Right. Yeah. Try to ask yourself as neutrally as possible. Could they have reasons to be concerned about this particular relationship beyond simply the fact that, you know, it's a little shocking um, for someone to date more than one person at the same time? Um, and if that's a possibility, that might be worth considering. I, I think, too, ask yourself, you know, um, if the fear is my parents will disown me, then that would mean that if you were to move in with this couple who they presumably knew you were dating, you know, if they ever found out where you lived, they would know. I, I, unless your parents are extremely gullible saying, oh, yeah, I know I was dating them a while back, but now we live together platonically is going to be a hard sell. So if you were to make this move, you would be committing to a very difficult lie that you would have to maintain 24/7. Yeah. And it's much it's much easier to have maintain a private life that doesn't where lying doesn't even come up as a potential issue if you're not living with your parents because they won't ask you where you were 2 hours ago if you're not living with them. They won't know. And it just makes things easier all around to not be living with your parents if if it is financially possible. Yeah. So I would say continue saving money. Um, if this relationship is making you happy and you are being treated well and and there's not, um, you know, a really messed up power dynamic between you all, certainly continue seeing them. Um, but but hold off on on moving in with anybody until you feel like it's a decision you're making out of desire rather than out of necessity. It's one thing to move in with someone because you you need to because of finances. It's another thing to move in with one or more partners because of financial necessity. And if you don't have to do that, I think it's good to avoid it because it can set up some equally difficult dynamics. Um, and, you know, if if the age gap is big, if the financial gap is big, um, if part of the the circumstances of this relationship were stressful because um, you know they've been 
telling you a lot about how old you are for your age and how mature you are for your age and they just connect with you. And yeah, I'm speculating a little bit, but I just investigate that. Check in, do a little like get the temperature of the room. And and also, I think if you're talking to a relative about something like this, simply saying, hey, keep this confidential is a little naive. Yeah. And um, really, it's it's. It's tempting, but it is not good to let your boyfriend rescue you from your parents unless you're in really immediate danger. And that's a different thing. But but but, yeah, you, you want to rescue yourself from the situation if you possibly can, because it sounds like yeah. your parents are not understanding people. But I don't I would I if I'm wrong, I apologize. But I don't get the sense that that this is. Do you think, am I wrong? I don't, I don't get a sense of danger from this, from the parents, but... No, I, I think, I, I don't think we have sufficient evidence here to say it sounds like this is a deeply manipulative and and patently dangerous situation, but it just seems like it could get there pretty quickly, especially because the letter writer says, I've recently entered into a romantic relationship. So again, like, they may be the greatest people. You guys may all be within two or three years of age. Uh, you may have a very, very healthy relationship in all other respects, but it's also very new. So, you know, there's there's no if it's good now, it's going to be good in a year. Um, It's going to be good if you have your own apartment. Um, There's no reason to rush to live together, um, especially if like the various um, downsides would be pretty significant. And good luck. You know, this is tricky stuff to navigate. I would also encourage you to find other people who are in polyamorous relationships who you're not interested in just to talk to so that you have people that you can kind of share your 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 challenges and your struggles with um, and who can kind of give you feedback on like, hey, this is really typical for people who are in relationships like this or like, actually, that one, that sounds really out of left field. I'm not so sure that that's as, as typical um, and can kind of give you feedback that's not simply I am horrified that you would date in any way that is not monogamous, and I think it's bad. End of list. I think that will probably be the most helpful thing for you. So, next letter. Um, I I feel like it's just a nice, easy softball because um, because we are going through some rough territory. So, Can't take it away. Okay. Um, subject: My son and wife let son and son's wife let baby cry all night. Dear Prudence, my husband and I slept with both our babies, now grown based on observing villagers where we traveled. Our 40-year-old son and his wife have been letting our granddaughter cry alone in her room as per instructions from their sleep coach. As her baby cried from 3 to 4 a.m., uh, I read the latest psychological studies on sleep training. It seems that previous studies were flawed. The babies left to cry in the dark have high cortisol levels during the time they are crying. I'm awake, a guest in their house. Do I leave for a hotel in less stress? That will hurt their feelings. They are coming on vacation with us in two weeks. Other people will be sharing the house. Do I just invite them? I think they are being cruel, but is it my place to butt in? And may I say that this is a very difficult question um, for someone who barely knows what a baby is. But um, I I believe that this is a, a, a young child under what, like a year old, would you say? That is my guess, yeah. If they if they've got a sleep coach, this is a young baby. So the, this is I didn't seriously research this, but just I want to be as correct as possible when I say that I don't think there is any. This is not this is a debate over etiquette, not a debate over damaging a child. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think, and again, this is <laughs> I also have none children. Um, my sister recently had a baby, and they uh, were also like texting with me. I mean, I've seen coach. babies. I've, um, I've met a few, but yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I, I, I do think this falls under the category of, um, you know, 
there are many different this is not like a SIDS situation, right? Like where it's like, no, there's actually like something yeah. that you really need to avoid and to prevent like physical harm or like long lasting psychological and the baby's damage. Old enough, it doesn't, They're not it like doesn't locking have to be fed every certain number of hours, I take it. I presume. I, I gotta say, I assume that if the son and the wife absent any reason to believe that they are cruel or neglectful parents, they're consulting a sleep coach yeah. about this. Yeah. I think this falls into the category of there are periodically studies that are like, let your baby dictate whenever they sleep and eat. And then other studies that are like, no, put your child on a regimented schedule. Um, I think it all kind of falls under the umbrella of sometimes there's reason to think one thing might work. Something might work for one baby and not for another. Um, generally speaking, um, from three to four in the morning, if the baby has already been fed and changed and 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 is warm and comfortable and taken care of, some parents may choose to do the sort of like briefly cry it out method as they do sleep training. If if it's too much to listen to a baby crying for an hour, absolutely go get a hotel room. Yeah, sure. But if the fear is this child will be you know just damaged irreparably for the rest of their life. I don't think that that's yeah, the case. Yeah, I was a little... And, and the sort like, of like... I wasn't completely positive whether the, the biggest area of concern was this keeps me awake and I can't sleep and it hurts my ears or this baby is in terrible pain because I I have a little sympathy, actually I have more than a little sympathy for being unable to sleep because, because, I mean, a baby crying is designed to distress you because it's supposed to make you want to go and help them, as I understand it. Right. That's yeah, and if you're cry. not their parent, it's not your place, perhaps, to go and do anything about it. So it's you can't do anything that's stressful. I understand that completely. Um, and yes, you should either put in earplugs, and if that doesn't work, yes, you should get a hotel. But I would say that I think I think maybe it's like a universal law that you probably shouldn't tell your son what to do with his baby, and you should never, so long as you live, ever tell your daughter-in-law what to do with her baby. But that's yeah. Again, unless you feel like they are yes, harming their certainly. children. And I don't think that this this crosses the yeah, line. No, this is um, a like the whole thing about like we observed villagers where we traveled. <laughs> I'm not really sure what villages you See, were now, in. I just assumed this was like, um, the small villages of the Hudson Valley in upstate New York, perhaps, you know. I, I have no idea. Yes. It it feels a little bit it like does. Yes. you know, like ah, we observed everyone in their natural like that kind it of does, like yes. You know, there's one natural way to raise a baby and you can go, you know, observe a village somewhere and that's the right way to do everything um, as opposed to I think part of what's hard is like with little kids, lots of different things work. Um, and yet sometimes just the condition of a baby is they're going to scream their heads off sometimes, even when everything is fine. Um, and that does not mean that the world is ending. It's just it's it's hard because it sounds like. So even like I'm staying up, I'm obsessively reading this study on sleep training, like they have high cortisol levels when they're crying, which like, yeah, they're crying. You already knew they were upset. This is not actually new information. It's like sort of like saying like when you're stressed out, your blood levels are stressed out. And it's like, yeah, you already knew that. That's actually it sounds kind of impressive and scientific to be like cortisol levels. Like, you know, we've all seen weird infomercials that like show blue 3D printing of people with cortisol and the horrible things it does to them. But it's just like, yes, the baby is crying. The baby is in distress. Um, sometimes that distress needs to be tended to immediately. And sometimes that distress does not. Um, and there there's not necessarily a way to raise children that means they never cry. So. I think in that sense, you do not have grounds to speak to your 40-year-old son and his wife about the work they are doing with a sleep coach. Um, I'm sure the sleep coach has read these studies. But don't. Don't. I mean, I... Start sending each other yeah, links. Yeah, I just don't think that's a good idea. And I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think that she should, or he, or she probably, or whoever, whoever. should just leave this alone. 
But if they must absolutely say something, you don't have to choose between keeping your mouth shut and butting in. You could just have a conversation, maybe. I mean, I, I recognize yeah, you could ask how the sleep training is going. You know, you could say, like, what's challenging? What's working? What's it yeah. like? Or, you you know, know, is it, is it, you, hard, you learn is it hard not to go to the baby when he's crying? But but don't don't do it in a in a way that it makes it obvious what you're trying to make them think because it won't work and yeah baby's yeah. probably fine yeah and and i think in addition to that yeah if what you would like to do is uh you know you could consider like would you like to offer to help out in this moments have they said like no thank you we really do want her to cry it out and in that case you know if you would like to say hey until you know she's sleeping a little more reliably through the night i may get a hotel room um that is okay. That is a very reasonable thing to say. Sleep is important. Um, if there's nothing to be done in those moments, if they're doing the cry it out method, um, I, I think it's really fine to say, I'm going to get you know a nearby hotel. And if they're like, that really hurts our feelings, I think you could just say, I'm sorry. I love you guys so much. Can't wait to come over during the day, but I've got to get my sleep. Um, and that that is fine. And so on top of that, you know, if they're coming on vacation with you in two weeks, I think disinviting somebody from vacation two weeks out is is a, a little bit drastic. Um, so I think instead have a conversation with them about, you know, there's going to be other guests. I'm a little nervous about the crying it out method. Um, can we talk about what we can do to make sure that um, her crying does not necessarily wake up everybody else? They may say, you know what, you're right. We kind of overestimated how much free time we'd have. We might want to stay back. Um, you know, if there's a more distant part of the house that's not as easily um, accessible to the rest of the house, you might want to give them that. Um, you might want to give everyone a heads up so that they at least know in advance and can pack earplugs and white noise machines. Um, and you might want to offer to put them up in a hotel room if you can afford it. Um, so I, I think you have a number of options and you should talk about all of them, but it should be focused pretty much on the logistics and not, uh, you know, your father and I did this 40 years ago. Because um, I'm sure you two did a lot of things 40 years ago that they have decided not to do. And that doesn't mean that you were bad parents. It just means they're different. Well, Zoe, this next one, this last one. Oh, goodness. I, I think I've never gotten a letter like this. This is a novel. This is this is actually three different novels and one short story that I've this, this, this would be an amazing yes. novel. Yes. Yeah. Um, it is really something else. And I'm really glad that I think it's my turn it to is. read. Because yes. so the subject is not my sister. Dear Prudence, I've lived in the same neighborhood for seven years. Last year, Jim and Anne, who are new to the area, moved in next door. We have young kids around the same ages, and Anne and I actually have the same last name. Furthermore, both sets of kids have hyphenated last names. We're friendly with them and often go out to dinner or share meals at home. But while I've had some time to develop a community in the area, I suspect that I am Anne's closest or even only friend here. Last week, while talking to another neighbor, I was shocked when she asked me if Anne and I were close growing up, seeing as how we're sisters. When I told her that we aren't, we just share a very common last name, she looked confused and said that Anne had told her she was my sister. As it turns out, from talking with others, Anne has told this to a lot of people, from our kid's school principal to her plumber. In addition to being completely bizarre, this puts me in an awkward position of having to expose Anne's obvious lie whenever it comes up. What should I do? I don't want to ruin our friendship because I really do like her and I want her to feel welcome. But at the same time, I'm not her sister. Whew. A uh, couple things. Um, Go on. Well, I hate to... I, I, I don't mean this in any kind of accusatory way, but are you sure you're not her sister, though? Because she seems pretty sure. 
that's one. Well, that's that's not really one thing. This is uh, I, I take yeah. it back. You're not a sister. I don't know but about that. This is this is uh, almost exactly like uh, Shirley Jackson's short story. That's I think the most frightening one she ever wrote. Um, and oh, the demon lover. No, well, no. I it's I always think it's that one. It's not. I looked it up because it is my favorite, and I forget the title. It's called Just Like Mother Used to Make. God, and yeah, yeah. Oh, it's from the same is, collection of short stories, I think. Yes, this is this is a cautionary tale about what happens when you go along with people because it doesn't make any sense and you don't know what to do and then it's too late. And I well, I won't I won't recap the entire short story, but point is, do not allow reality to reshape itself around you without fighting back because she's not your sister. And it is all right to say that you're not she, she's not your sister since she's not your sister. One possibility I that does occur to me that is a long shot, but it is possible. If she has this quality to an even greater degree of being uncomfortable contradicting people, could it perhaps be that someone assumed you were sisters and she didn't contradict them soon enough and then she felt she had to go along with it? I mean, right. that doesn't I, make I sense, think, but nothing makes sense, really. So I, I think that's probably the most um, generous observation, and I hope that that's the case. And honestly, like, you know, th- th- there's a number of other possibilities. So far, this has not caused you any harm. This is not a malicious lie. It's possible she feels really embarrassed. It's possible it's one of those things where, you know, um, somebody made an assumption, she didn't correct it, and then it spread without her active participation. It's also possible that she has felt... Um, lonely and alienated and has started telling the story and there's something complicated going on there that she needs to kind of work with. Either way, I think you can approach this uh, in a way that is both kind but also honest. I I think you just speak to her directly. I think you just say, you know, Anne, uh, I want to ask you about something that really surprised me. I was talking to somebody recently and they asked uh, me about what it was like to be sisters growing up. Um, She told me that you had told her that we were sisters. Um, I've since heard from a number of other people that you've told them the same thing. Um, And I wanted a chance to, to ask you about it because I don't know, you know, has this been a conversation you've been having a lot? Um, is this something that somebody assumed once and then may have been kind of spreading without your knowledge? Uh, what's what's going on here? I'm confused. As you know, we are not sisters. Um, that, I, I think that's a pretty... Yeah, I would, I would try. I mean, I don't know if this is a good idea or not. I would try to give her an easy out to say, like, oh, I, I don't know why they said that. Like, I that's so funny because I would never have... Yeah, not not to allow her to lie her way out, but I was just going to say that sounds like a chance for her to lie. Well, just just in case. I mean, I, again, it's a very remote possibility, but just in case there was a misunderstanding and she didn't actively spread the story, she just didn't correct it in time, and then other people sure. heard, which I, I know is not likely. But but well, I do think saying like I wanted to hear about it from you gives her the opportunity to say what her side of the story is. Sure, um, and it may be that there's a sort of goofy explanation for it and she's like yep it happened one time i was sort of embarrassed i didn't know this person very well it seemed like an easy enough thing to not want to correct but then later i realized one or two other people um had had heard it as well and then i felt embarrassed but i didn't want to say anything or there could be something else going on or you know she she either way i don't think you have to spend too much time worrying about how to bring it up with her as long as you are fairly kind and honest you just tell her what happened and ask her what she knows about it, 
that's it. Like, you're not responsible for the fact that this is a weird situation. So it's not on you to sort of like massage the truth um, yeah. or like couch it real, real, real gently. Um, and it is fine. But if, if other people ask you, like like this letter says, like, what was it like being sisters? You, you can you can just say, oh, we're not sisters. You don't have to right. play along. And in fact, uh, if it were, I would be very tempted just to see what happened and not correct anyone. But uh, that's bad advice. Don't do that. Uh, it would be people. good in the short story, but not so much in the real life. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yes. And certainly, you know, if you're also emphasizing like this, you know, this doesn't change the fact that we're good friends. I really enjoy your company. I just want to know what's going on um, so that you're making it clear. You're not like I have exposed you, you fraud. Um, um, and that, it, you know, if her primary response is one of embarrassment and humiliation, um, God, this happened when I first moved here and I didn't know how to correct it and I thought people forgot about it, um, then that definitely, like, leaves uh, a lot of yeah. warmth on both sides where she, really, she understands that you're not being like, what the hell have you been saying about me, you weirdo? But I just, I'm, I'm trying to imagine a different answer she could give and I can't think of one, which is the fascinating part to me because... Because what else could she say other than that it was a misunderstanding she didn't mean to? Honestly, yeah. if she were to say, like, I'm embarrassed about this. I have been telling people somebody assumed it at first and it made me feel really good. And, like, other people liked me because of my association with you. Um, and I feel really embarrassed, but I did just keep lying. Like, that's at least interesting and 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 something I think that you could talk about and and it might be something that you would have to kind of recover from as friends but it doesn't necessarily mean she is a, a an unrepentant jerk like there's room I think here for oh, complexity no, no um, I honestly like I wouldn't be mad I would just be fascinated but I yeah I, I think I would I, I would I would have some like uh, feelers up because I would feel like does this mean that there's other things that she would lie about you know can I trust her the way that I thought I could yeah or um, does she but, believe it I mean I you would assume she doesn't because you assume right. she also knows but you never know right but yeah it would certainly like while it would have me a little bit more on my guard I wouldn't necessarily think wow this is a person I absolutely cannot trust do not want to be friends with want to get away from um, I, I think my my primary response would be sort of one of like mostly neutral slightly suspicious but still friendly curiosity. Yeah, that's good advice. And of course, like if you do feel weird about it or if you really don't like her answer, you know, you can you can back off from that friendship. That's totally okay. Um, but then people right just back ask you the, why you won't talk to your sister anymore. So you Yeah, it. absolutely. Continue saying like, and you don't have to say like, Anne was lying. If somebody else brings it up, you can just say, oh, we're actually not related. You must have misunderstood. And most yeah. people are going to say either, oh, I guess I did. Or no, she like sent me a notarized letter. And then, you know, <laughs> the, the web might be a little more thick than you initially believed. And you might learn some more. But please write back with an update because I really, really want to know. Yes, what I she do says. too. I, I, yeah. I desperately do. Yes. Please, please, please. Yeah. Send us one as soon as you can. Well, Zoe. Yes, Daniel. We did it. We did, I guess. I guess we did. Thank you so, so much for taking all this time out to solve the problems of the world. Well, it was it was easy. Um, thank you for bearing with my uh, inexperience with microphones and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I, I have some experience with microphones, but I don't know anything about them. So, frankly, I don't think experience when it comes to microphones um, means a lot when it comes to being on this show. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus, and our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. 
head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 